Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is brought to you by SKP Creative. SKP is a full-service marketing agency, and I asked them what they wanted to communicate this time around. Right now, they want to encourage those who are eligible to get their COVID vaccine. Amarillo is one of the real bright spots in the state of Texas in terms of vaccine distribution. Our public health team has been doing fantastic work. If you qualify for the Phase 1A or 1B allocation plan, watch AmarilloAlerts.com to get the latest information about availability and vaccination schedules. That's AmarilloAlerts.com. Thanks again to SKP Creative. Today's guest is Clay Stribling. Clay is the president CEO of the Amarillo Area Foundation, a regional community foundation that serves the 26 counties of the Texas Panhandle and the 400,000 people who live here. The foundation is involved in all kinds of philanthropic, nonprofit, and community issues. I know you've heard its name thrown around. And that has given Clay a really solid grasp of who we are in Amarillo and how to address the needs of this community. Meanwhile, he's a former healthcare attorney who found his way into this position after a career at a prominent Amarillo law firm and a healthcare-related business venture. So we've got a lot to talk about. He's a huge advocate for Amarillo, and it was an honor to hear his perspective. Here's Clay Stribling. Clay Stribling, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Good. Well, I'm excited that uh, that you're excited. I, I know that we've got a lot of things to talk about. I know that uh, the Emerald Area Foundation plays a, a large role uh, in this area. But before we get to any of that stuff, I want to start where I start with most of my guests and just ask you, why are you here? How did you end up in the Emerald area? Well, I, I grew up in Hereford, uh, born and raised in the region. On graduation from high school, I, I decided to go to WT and okay. um, kind of pursued a variety of things. My joke is I changed majors every single semester at WT, so I might have a new record for the number of majors a, an undergrad had at that school, but um, ended up deciding to get a general studies degree okay. and graduated, uh, spent some time in Lubbock, worked on a master's at Tech for a while, but I dropped out of my master's program because my rock band was going to be the best thing ever. and so Seems legit. <laughs> so you can tell where that led me. I'm, I was never on the cover of Rolling. Stone, and I, uh, I never really played any of the big halls. But wait, what um, did you play in the band? I was bassist and lead singer. Okay, so, cool. Uh, we had a great time. Still friends with all of my my band mates, and uh, still enjoy hearing all those stories. But uh, moved on from that and went and worked in a family business with my father for several years in Hereford. Uh, we had an irrigation manufacturing company, manufactured parts for center pivot sprinklers, and okay. really successful business, and loved working with my dad. You know, we hadn't been nearly as close in high school as we were in the business because he was always, he's a workaholic. I mean, he spent his time at the office, and so to get to spend time with him in that setting was really rewarding, and I really enjoyed it. But at some point during that process, mid-90s, I decided I couldn't be single and live in Hereford any longer. I, okay. I, I had to relocate and, and uh, be around single folks. So I made the decision to go to law school. In 96, I enrolled at SMU. Had a really good experience at SMU Law. It was, um, I, I was not a great undergrad student, but I was a very successful law student. And okay. a lot of that has to do with I was spending my own money to go to law school. Um, and That's I a was, good motivator. Yes, I was spending the government's money and scholarship money to go to undergrad, and and uh, law school was a much more successful academic experience for me, and I, I loved it. It's I love learning things, and I used to tell people going to law school was amazing for me because it's like I walked into a room where everyone was speaking a language that I had spoken my entire life. Hmm. You know, I'm very logical, I'm very analytical, I'm very process oriented, and to get to law school and see that that was the way the law was laid out was just fantastic for me. Because that's not a real traditional path, you know, to get a general studies degree, to kind of drop out, to work at an irrigation company, <laughs> and then to, like, find your, you know, your your calling uh, in the legal profession or at yes. law school. It, it just happened to match up with you, and ha had you not really thought of it up to that point? Or? You know, I'd considered it some in my undergrad career at WT, but I had a, I had a couple of folks who were academic counselors at WT who, I won't say discouraged, but were not big fans of law school at that point. And I think at hmm. that point they were right. When I was looking at it in the mid to late 80s, 
it was probably a little bit of an overcrowded field. Okay. And I think that um, I would have had a difficult time at that point going straight into law just because there were so many applicants. Somewhere in the 90s, that number kind of dropped a little bit. Um, I got in when it was starting to creep back up, and in the early 2000s, there were a lot of legal grads. But I think I think I got the right advice, although I didn't love hearing it in the 80s that we don't think law school is the right choice for you at this point. But in the mid-90s, when it was uh, something I could do without really having to um, have any advice from anybody else about it, it was the right choice, and I really enjoyed it. Okay, so I want to ask a question that probably nobody cares about except for me. Okay. But this is just one that you're here, and I'm going to ask. Did having a general studies degree have any like detrimental impact on getting into law school or anything like that? Because that's that's something I wrestled with. You know, when I was in college, I wanted to do a lot of different things, and I thought, well, I just I just want to study everything that I can study and not like mm-hmm. commit to something. Eventually, got talked out of that. No, I I didn't have a problem getting into my master's program at Tech. I, I a general studies degree was fine for that. They didn't give me any grief about it at all. And going to law school. Quite honestly, I was a little surprised because um, not only did I have a degree that wasn't a particularly specific degree, but my GPA wasn't fantastic. Hmm. Um, but I'm a good test taker, and I did well in the LSAT. And so um, those all those factors combined led to success getting into all the schools I applied to. So no, I didn't feel hampered at all by a general study. You never had future employers look at your resume and, and uh, raise their eyebrow at your degree, anything like that? So. You, I would have a few once in a while that would say general studies, but tell me what you really studied. Okay. Where did you spend your time? Were you in business classes? Were you in science classes? You know, and I did have a few that wanted to hone in on what I really spent my time studying, uh, but nobody ever said we don't hire general studies yeah, uh, yeah. students. You you lack focus. We right. can't do that. <laughs> so so tell me about after you graduated from law school, you were in the Dallas area. Was the goal to come back to this area, or were you open to whatever? I mean, how did that work? My goal when I got out of law school was to find a firm that I could spend my entire career practicing law at. I went to work for a firm called Jenkins & Gilchrist right out of law school. It was a great firm. It was 700 lawyers, and in in my practice group, there were 24 lawyers when I joined it. I was in the healthcare group, but they had some challenges operationally. And the market kind of softened in 2001, mm-hmm. and when 9-11 hit and the market kind of softened, they had grown so quickly that they kind of just shrunk out of control. They went from 700 lawyers when I joined to about 320 when I left. Wow. And in my practice group when I left, it had been 24. It was four when I when I was laid off in, in 2002. So the goal for me was to stay there through my career. They didn't survive. They they broke up in 2005. The IRS f- said they'd been given bad tax advice and Man. closed the doors. So I was fortunate to get out before it was the stigma of you were in that group. Exactly. Um, but when I when I found myself unemployed in 2002, um, you know I moped around for a little bit, and my wife at the time said, "I'm not going to listen to you cry about losing a job you didn't love that much." You know, so get out there and find something. So uh, I called Houston and talked to some folks I knew down there, but I also had by reputation heard about Brown and Fortunato here in Amarillo, which had a fantastic reputation as a healthcare boutique firm. So I picked up the phone and called the office manager there and said I was interested in a job. And she said, we're not hiring, but send me your resume. Mm -hmm. The same day, two hours later, the head of the firm called and said, well, we don't hire people who have no connection to the panhandle, but since you grew up here and there's a chance you might actually stay here, um, we'd like to talk to you. Um, and, you know, a lot of times folks will they'll start in a situation like that just to get some experience, and two years later they'll go work in Fort Worth or Dallas right. or Houston. But when they can find someone who has some real ties and connections here, they always want to talk to them. So uh, I interviewed here. I loved the group. Uh, my coworkers were fantastic. The entire time I was there, I worked with a, a fantastic group of people I can't say enough great about Brown and Fortunato and the and the people that I worked with there. How did you feel about coming to work in Amarillo? I mean, you you didn't grow up in Amarillo. Obviously, being in Hereford, you had a connection to Amarillo. There, every everybody in one of the smaller towns in the Panhandle has a perspective on Amarillo. Did it? I mean, what did it feel like? Did it feel like coming home, or did it still feel like kind of a new thing? Well, to me, it felt like coming home because it was. Um, it was coming to a community very close to where my parents still lived. My brother still lives very close in Hereford. I really enjoyed the Panhandle lifestyle, 
And, you know, as much as I resisted being single in Hereford, raising a family in the Panhandle is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, it really is. And it's a good family oriented community. I, I felt no negative stigma at all coming back to Amarillo or the Panhandle. I was thrilled. Now, um, I was married to someone who had never been to the Panhandle before and wasn't really certain about it. But, um, after a couple of years, she fell in love with it. And, uh, so it's been a, it's been a positive move all the way around. I know, I know that that's no longer what you do, but give me a sense of the work you did at Brown and Fortunato, especially, you know, the, the idea of the scope of that work. A, a lot of times people think about, you know, maybe a law firm like that one and they think, well, how much law is there to do, you know, in Amarillo, Texas? But I know that's not the case. So, well, you know, the interesting thing about the practice at Brown and Fortunato is they have more clients in central Florida than they have in Amarillo. I mean, hmm. it is a national healthcare practice. And it's very focused. I, I was really surprised when I came here. You know, they work very closely with medical equipment suppliers and with uh, specialty pharmacies and some really niche healthcare providers, but in in thirty something states. And when I was practicing, I had clients in thirty one states. I traveled all over the country. I spoke at large conferences all over the country. We were considered at Brown and Fortunato the experts in the country on what we did. Hmm. We, we focused on helping medical equipment suppliers and pharmacies understand the complexities of working in a Medicare billing environment or a Medicaid billing environment, how to stay out of trouble with that, um, how to navigate the ever-changing world of Medicare regulations. And then late in my career, the last couple of years I was there, we saw the pending change to competitive bidding for durable medical equipment, which had never been the case. So now you couldn't just become a supplier that provided diabetic testing supplies. You had to be selected as one of the specific right. national competitive bidding suppliers. And that was just a, a huge change. I, I consider myself a little fortunate, honestly, that I didn't have to wrap my head around professionally that change. Um, and when I made my transition, I think the arena has gotten much more complicated. But to their credit, the folks at Brown and Fortunato are still considered the top experts in that in the country, and they still do fantastic work. Okay, so tell me, tell me about the transition then that you made out of out of the legal world and more toward you know, I guess, the hospital or medical side. So I, I spent a year. I made the decision in 2010 that I wanted to leave the firm and I wanted to focus on a consulting practice of my own. Uh, I was going to do pr primarily non-legal consulting. I was going to do operational consulting for medical equipment companies and specialty pharmacies. I didn't really want to put myself in a specific competitive position with my former employers because I, I loved all those people and I didn't want to, I didn't want to have a negative relationship with them. So I focused on some operational consulting but somewhere in the first year of doing that work, um, I got a phone call from my dad. And dad was a huge fan of the Area Foundation. And he was a big fan of my predecessor, Jim Allison, who was there for 22 years. Mm -hmm. And dad used to tell me, even when we worked together in Hereford, you know, Jim has the best job in the Texas Panhandle. He he's runs at this foundation, and uh, he gets to help people, and um, he gets to manage a portfolio. And dad just thought that Jim had the greatest job. So dad called me in January of 2011 and said, I just heard that Jim's retiring. Go get his job. Hmm. And I said, you know, dad, uh, you know, I've got a job. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing well. My consulting's going well. I don't know anything about what's going on at the foundation right now. And he, he said, no, you need to go down there and talk to him. And he called me every day for four days. And I finally said, if I'll call the headhunter, will you leave me alone? And um, he said, yes. And um, I called and there was a, uh, an immediate connection with the recruiter and there was an immediate interest both ways from me and from the foundation on having some more conversations. Um, and it moved really quickly from that point. Hmm. I was hired in, in, um, mid April, took, uh, took my job over in April on May 11th of 2011 and have just loved it ever since. So beyond the advocacy of your dad, tell me what it is about maybe your strengths or your personality or, or your work experience that made you such a good fit for the job? Well, I, I think there are a variety of things that um, you really need to be successful in, in this kind of work. You, you, need to, you need to have a heart for what you do and a heart for your community because at the end of the day, our mission is to improve quality of life for people in the Texas Panhandle. 
And you've got to have a love for the Texas Panhandle and people that live here. So I think that's first and foremost. You know, from my standpoint, I'm very good with people. I, I'm, I'm a good communicator. Um, I'm very patient. People who have a really strong personality and who are very, you know, aggressive, they don't bother me. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm not a, a shrinking violet with people with strong personalities and I can deal with that. And I think all of those things come into play when you are trying to connect donors to needs in our community. Donors come in with a really specific set of ideas about what they want to accomplish. And my goal is to help them accomplish what they want to, but put it through the correct conduit so it's most effective. Right. They get the most benefit from a tax standpoint or whatever they're trying to accomplish on the donor side. And so thinking creatively is something that's that's been a, a, a benefit. But again, you know, in this role more than anywhere I've been, it's been about finding the right people to work with and just trusting them to do their job and and letting them go. Um, you know, I when I first came to the foundation uh, 10 years ago, I tended to be a little more hands-on. And I, I don't like using the word micromanage, but that might have been true at times because I was learning the field as well. And I really wanted to look over people's shoulders and understand what they were doing. Now that I'm more comfortable and I have a team that's more comfortable, it's really about just putting the right people in place and trusting them to get it done. So let's talk about the actual work that the foundation does. Um, because it's one of those local entities that probably has really high name recognition, but does so much under such a broad umbrella and, you know, all 26 counties of the, the panhandle that it's hard to say, this is what we do. This right. is why we are important. And ask anybody on the street, they're going to be like, I, yeah, I don't know. My kid applied for some scholarships, you know, when they were a senior, but that was it. You know, so, so tell me, give, give me the broad strokes of, of what the foundation does. Well, you know, at the core of the foundation's history, it started in 1956 as the hospital committee of the of, of the city. And the, the hospital committee's job was to build a world-class medical center out at Coulter and Wallace. And so um, the first thing to do was acquire land, and we acquired land from the bush Emmony family and, uh, and started from there trying to allocate that land to folks who wanted to move into the medical center. So health care was at the core of the foundation from its very beginning. As we moved into the 70s, um, education became the new focus area, uh, the new additional focus area of the foundation. We started the first scholarship funds. The Bush Accounting Scholarship was one of the first scholarships that we ever uh, established, and that was established in the early 70s. From there, the foundation started more focusing on nonprofit grants, arts, but really, the, the change that made the big difference in the area foundation happened in 1988. And in, in 1988, two things happened that fundamentally changed the foundation. Number one, the Don and Sybil Harrington Foundation chose to merge into the area foundation to become a supporting organization of the foundation. That brought tens of millions of dollars of assets mm -hmm. in that we didn't have before. But the second thing was Jim Allison was hired to be the executive director, and Jim was a fantastic leader for the organization for years. Jim had a good vision for how to grow the foundation. Um, he had a good business sense. And Jim really moved the foundation into a new era of success. Now, at the same time, uh, the 90s were an enormous period of growth from a stock investment standpoint. Sure. We had oil and gas that came over from the Harrington Foundation in, in the 90s, and that helped grow the foundation. So there were a lot of factors, but Jim's leadership was key. And the other part that was key was having those assets of the Harrington Foundation rolled in. So today, we're an organization that manages 375 funds as subparts of the foundation, whether those are scholarship funds, donor-advised funds, agency funds for nonprofit uh, organizations that invest their money with us and, and we help it grow. Uh, we do a wide variety of things. We're involved this year in a strategic plan that's going to see us going back to our roots in healthcare and education, but also really being focused on economic opportunity in our communities and how do we make communities grow, particularly how do we keep our rural communities from becoming uh, ghost towns? How yeah. do we keep people interested in staying in our rural communities, which out-migration has been a huge challenge. Tell me a little bit about that division between Amarillo, which as the, the hub of the panhandle, you know, has the highest population, it's where everybody comes, but the scope of your work is not just Amarillo. 
So you've got to focus on the rest of the panhandle. How do you divide time? How do you divide interest, all that stuff to make sure that all of these objectives get met? And it's not just all of our attention is on one place. It's difficult. And, you know, uh, part of the part of the difficulty starts with the fact that when people in rural communities hear the Amarillo Area Foundation, they only hear Amarillo, they don't hear area. Yeah, it's and not so, the Hereford right. Area Foundation. <laughs> or it's not the Texas Panhandle yeah. Foundation. Um, so, you know, we have to educate folks in our communities, and we have to have a mindset internally of half the population in our service area resides in Amarillo, but half resides outside. So we have specific rules about how many board members we have from outside Amarillo and Canyon. We're required to have uh, at least eight board members that reside or work primarily outside of Amarillo and Canyon. Um, but we also have to be focused when we make grants on, is this organization an organization that supports just Amarillo? Does it support just a rural community? Or is it based in Amarillo and serves the entire region? And so, you know, something like the High Plains Food Bank, yes, it's located in Amarillo. Yes, it's, its focus is sometimes here, but it really does serve a, a really broad area. So we need to be focused on trying to make sure that we're supporting rural, urban, and regional providers um, in pretty equal amounts. And I think if we funded a third to rural, a third to local, and a third to regional, we would really be providing about the right mix of services to the entire region. Can you give me a um, maybe some concrete examples of whether it's organizations, whether it's scholarship funds, something like that? You know that that is something that a, a, a person who lives in this area may have interacted with. They may not know the Amarillo Area Foundation, but if they know the food bank, you know because of the funding, that's kind of an arm. You know, or at least you're in the back end of that. So tell me about some of these places that may touch local lives. Uh, that the foundation's involved with. You know, I, I always like to start with, in your community, look for the name Harrington on something. Okay. Because in almost every rural community, you're going to have the Harrington Room, the Harrington Building, the Harrington Center, um, and all of those things um, through 1988, but then even before, uh, spiritually kind of flowed from this combination of these two entities. And so when you think about something like the Harrington Cancer Center, where so many people in our region have come for, for assistance. And you think about the fact that people from all over the 26 counties come here for specialized medical services. And when you're coming here for specialized medical services, you're coming to a, a healthcare center that was catalyzed by the Amarillo Area Foundation 62 years ago. And I really think those examples on healthcare in education, you're right. We provide uh, scholarship assistance to folks in a, a wide variety of communities. We have some scholarships that are very specialized. You know, a, a student from Groover that's studying journalism, um, and uh, you know, but we have some very broad ones too, like the Hazelwood Scholarship, which is for top students in the 26 counties that uh, that want to go to WT. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's it's really a wide variety on both fronts, but also then. Think about the nonprofit organizations in your small community that help. Think about the food pantries that are there and ask them, have you had assistance from the Area Foundation? And I think you'll find that a great many of them have had support from the foundation at some point, whether it's training, whether it's funding, um, putting them in contact with someone that can help them with their raw materials and needs. Um, but we try very hard to stay connected to rural communities. And one of the new things that we're working on that I'm very excited about and I'm looking to see expanded in the next few years is we've seen some programs started in a lot of our rural communities that are very similar to the ACE or Thrive program that we have here, which is every graduate from Borger starting next year will have access to 60 hours of free community college when they get out of high school. Now we're moving that into Dalhart. The, okay. the Rawl family has been very generous in helping us catalyze that. And the, the city um, and the community college and the Economic Development Corporation in each of these communities have stepped up and said, we'll be your partner in that. Um, we have similar programs that were started in Dumas and Perryton. We hope to see those spread to some other communities in the next couple of years. But the more we put these um, initiatives or help initiate these programs in these smaller communities, the more people will be able to touch. And I think that's really where you see the impact and people don't think about it. They think about my kid went to school through the Quest program in Dumas, but they don't know that the Quest program was something that we've helped um, along the way or the Allen scholarship up in Perryton that we've helped the Pathways folks uh, catalyze. 
And it's a, it's a difficult balance sometimes, Jason, of, you know, people saying you don't get enough credit for this. Well, we're not in it to get credit. Yeah. We're in it to make the program successful. And if anything, we want the local communities to get credit for it. We want the Allen family to get credit for it or the Rawls to get credit for it because they're the ones that have really put up the bulk of the money. We just kind of got the pieces together and put the puzzle together. But um, it's a balance between helping people understand that you took part versus not trying to be out there blowing your own horn constantly about, look at us. Yeah, and that, that partnership, like you said, is, is really an underrated kind of thing because I imagine there are a lot of families, especially in the panhandle, that have oil and gas money or, or they've got something and they think, well, I want to fund a scholarship or I want to start a foundation. And there's there's just a lot of stuff involved to do that. Mm-hmm. And you make it possible for someone to just say, look, I've got this chunk of money. How can I do this? Right. And and it can just kind of flow through that umbrella. It can. And you know, starting a foundation means legal work, it means accounting work, it means annually having to do reporting. And opening a fund at the foundation means we do all of that. Yeah. All you really do is give us instructions, tell us how you want it to be accomplished, and we take care of the legwork and the details. And so if you're talking about an amount of money, anything less than fifteen or twenty million dollars you're often better off looking at partnering with a community foundation in your community than starting your own enterprise just because you're going to save money long-term, not having to jump through all those hoops. So tell me about this past year. I know that uh, when you look at the nonprofit world, when you look at community needs, those have been exponentially higher, you know, just because of everything that's been happening. How did that change the way that you thought about your work and, and some of the things that the foundation did? Well, it was it was a fundamental shift mid-year. So we entered we entered 2020 committed to going down this this threefold path of our new strategic plan, focusing on certain healthcare, certain education, and certain economic opportunity priorities. When we got to mid-March and we saw that COVID was going to dominate our work for at least six months, um, the board made the decision in, in April to say, We're going to change our grant priorities for the rest of the year. We're doing COVID relief for the remainder of 2020. And as difficult as that was for the board to choose to do in April, looking forward to December, in in the rearview mirror, it is absolutely the right decision. So we, we told the nonprofit community, We've helped you through the Panhandle Disaster Relief Fund. We've given you up to $25,000 of assistance for specific COVID-related outreach. But now we're giving you the opportunity to take a larger bite from the apple. Come to us with your $100,000 projects, your $180,000 projects, and we'll fund COVID relief projects um, throughout the rest of the year. That was very successful. We had a really high number of applications last year. Most of our applicants were in relatively dire straits. And you think about the fact that the demand is up, but what hurt most of the organizations wasn't necessarily just the demand. It was that they lost their fundraisers for the entire year. We didn't have galas. We didn't have um, barbecues. We didn't have celebrations. We didn't have silent auctions. And so all of that income that they count on to do the work that they do disappeared from March uh, through the end of the year for most of them. A couple of organizations tried to have fundraisers. Um, but seeing the increase in need at a time that you saw a significant decrease in contributions was a real challenge. And so we tried very hard to not only look at COVID relief as our priority, but to also look at loosening some of our traditional resistance to operating revenue. You know, mm-hmm. we, we don't generally love just giving operating revenue because we don't like being a line item in a nonprofit's budget. But this year, we said, if, if it's COVID patients that you are uh, supporting, come to us for operating revenue. Tell us what your needs are. We're, we're here to help. And we had a really strong response from the nonprofit community, um, and the board did its work very diligently this year. And I'm very proud of everybody involved. And that requires a real shift in thinking. I mean, from, from a long-term, you know, how can we make this a better place to live for the next generation to how do we get past this six-month crisis um, it would, it would, tell me about some of those conversations and, and the way that the board approached it. Was was there any any resistance to it, or was it like, oh, of course, this is the right thing to do? No, it was the second all the way around. Yeah. The board immediately said, 
well, yes, this is exactly what we need to do. And, and to the board's credit, it wasn't even really the staff's suggestion that we make this change. Somebody on the board said, you know, we need to be about nonprofit survival for the rest of the year. This needs to be our priority because if we want to tell the nonprofit community that we're here for you um, in good times, we've got to be here for them in bad. And um, the board members were very adamant that we wanted to support individual residents who were suffering as a result of COVID. But we also wanted to support those nonprofits that were suffering because we didn't want to see a large number of nonprofit failures in this environment um, that created even more demand and more need and a, a bigger vacuum of resources. So the board was absolutely committed to trying to support nonprofit survival and supporting people who were impacted by the pandemic. So how do you approach a year like this one? I, I know that there's there's still so much uncertainty to where we can we can see the vaccine and we can see a light at the end of the tunnel. At the same time, we're just coming out of a, a really deadly surge. There's still businesses that are struggling. Um, you know, nobody's really sure what the next few months are going to look like. How does an organization like yours, you know, set priorities for the first six months of the year or for the entire year? Well, we've made the decision to go back to pursuing our our strategic plan. But at the same time, we've taken out a pretty big chunk of money from implementing that plan to put into our disaster relief fund for the same types of same type of support that we did last year, which is nonprofit survival um, and supporting folks that are providing direct COVID relief. So for the first six months, we've put some money into that fund to try to help those nonprofits. And the board has made it very clear if in February or March we see that it's not enough, we'll put some more in there. We'll continue funding that until the um, until the curve starts to have a downward trend mm -hmm. and we can see that the needs are starting to diminish from a COVID standpoint and starting to get back to our traditional healthcare and education and economic opportunity priorities. Tell me a little bit about... Well, it, it occurs to me that um, from your position... You're able to see, on a, on a real firsthand basis, the generosity of local organizations and local people who are meeting real needs right now, while you're also benefiting, in terms of the foundation, from the generosity of families you know, that established this area, that made their money in this area, and whose generosity has like sustained so much of what makes Amarillo a great place to live, you know, from arts organizations to... Uh, the Harrington Cancer Center, all that stuff. You know, as someone who grew up here and and now you work here and you deal on a daily basis, what has it helped you understand about Panhandle people, uh, about the the generosity, the forward thinking, about all those kinds of things that you know that are you're dealing with every day? Well, um, you know, the number one word that comes to mind for me is always generosity, because there are studies every year that talk about the percentage of someone's annual income that they give to charitable causes. And you can see a, a heat map of the United States based on this factor. And the most densely colored pieces of that heat map are always the Texas Panhandle. Really? We give more as a percentage of our annual income than anywhere in the country. Just per capita? Per capita. So when, and, and I think this is information that comes directly from tax re returns. So when you look at tax returns and you see, here's my income, here's what I gave to charity as a, as a deduction, the numbers in the panhandle are higher than anywhere in the country. And that's a testament to people not only being generous, but also having a vision for how to implement that. I mean, a lot of people are generous and they just go help their neighbor by, you know, helping them build a fence and, and all of those are admirable things. But the way this is calculated, you can see that they're strategic in saying we're going to give to our local church, we're going to give to a foundation, we're going to give to a nonprofit organization. And so it's a testament to generosity and strategy that they're thinking about how to implement that and exactly what should um, what should be their priorities. I, I am amazed at the generosity of families here. And a lot of people think about it and they think about the names that you hear like the the Harringtons. Um, you think about the Bivens family. You think about some of the prominent families in our in our history. 
But in reality, it's it's everyday people too. It's people uh, on Main Street, not on Wall Street, that are giving this high percentage. And so it's not just those folks who have the big names and the really deep pockets. It's everyone else who makes $40,000 and still gives away $10,000 to their church or still gives $5,000 to the food bank. That's what really makes the difference here. Can you explain that? Why? Like if, if that heat map is so focused on the panhandle, have you seen anything about panhandle people or can you determine any cause as to why that's the case? Or is this it's just a part of the culture here? Well, I think it's part of the culture, but I think it comes from heart and not from a desire to, to uh, reap their own benefit. Because looking at the last three years, so several years ago, there was an end to the charitable deduction for a lot of folks right. just because it became such a high threshold that unless you made a really large amount of money or unless you gave away a really enormous amount of money, you didn't experience a tax benefit. Now, the result of that should have been that organizations like the Area Foundation saw a decrease in money from uh, middle-income and upper-middle-income donors but we didn't. Hmm. You look at something like the Panhandle Gives this year, where we doubled what we did in previous years. We raised $3.6 million. During and, uh, a pandemic. During a pandemic. And not from folks that were millionaires trying to give really large chunks of money. This was 5,000 gifts that came into us over a week's period of time. And it's from everyday people who are just trying to make their community better. And to me, that's got to come back to the heart that we have for our neighbors, the heart that we have for the organizations that we love to support, and just the mindset of people who've lived here their whole life and say, I still want to see this be the best place to raise a family. So I know you also spend a lot of time not just meeting current needs and, and thinking about that, but looking toward the future. And And I'd like to ask, I'd like to close this section actually by uh, just asking you some of the things that you are thinking about, you know, needs that might come up, ways that the foundation might need to continue to fund in a certain direction, you know, based on the next 5, 10, 15 years here in Amarillo. You know, the first thing that jumps to mind for me is mental health. You know, we're, we were concerned about mental health before the pandemic, but quite frankly, I'm very worried that the pandemic is uh, really making those mental health concerns elevated. Um, you know, we, we have really good mental health resources in the city of Amarillo, but when you get outside the city of Amarillo, there are many communities that don't have a social worker, a licensed professional counselor, um, a, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, any mental health resources at all. So anyone in Borger or Hereford or Dumas or Dalhart who really needs marital counseling, depression counseling, any of those things are looking at either looking at a telemedicine solution for this by going into a local provider, Zooming, FaceTiming into Amarillo or another location, or driving all the way to Amarillo to get that yeah. done. And mental health, I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg with mental health concerns that the pandemic's going to cause, um, or not necessarily cause, but exacerbate, make worse. So I really worry that mental health is one of those things on the horizon. I think the other thing that's on the horizon is uh, I was very encouraged, I believe it was three years ago, but it might have been four, when uh, Mayor Nelson talked about her zero to five initiative in Amarillo and the fact that we're really going to focus on trying to get every kid ready to read mm -hmm. um, at, at the time they start pre-K. And that's so vitally important. But we've recognized in the past year that part of that, um, part of that formula is a lot of parents don't read. Hmm. And so how are we asking a parent that doesn't read to help their child be ready to read uh, by kindergarten? So we're looking at a two-generation approach to literacy in a lot of places as we move forward to try to make sure that parents have access to um, reading and English language proficiencies, and that at the same time, they're helping their kids achieve those same skills as they're heading into pre-K and kindergarten. So those are the two things that jump jump out to me. The other one that is just looming out there for me like a, a sword hanging over my head is water. Yeah. I'm so concerned about water in some of our rural communities and in counties like um, Dallam and Hartley and Parmer and Def Smith, where we've had an abundance of water for so long, but the table is diminishing so quickly. I really wonder what those communities look like when 
there's no water for irrigation or agricultural purposes, and we're struggling with water for residents, um, I'm really concerned about what that looks like a generation from now. Do you have, you know, the, the, the panhandle spirit has always been a problem-solving spirit, a, you know, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, um, carve out an existence on the high plains. Do you have hope that a big problem like that one, the water problem, is one that our, our grit and determination can solve? Is it something that is going to require some outside help, you know, to, to address? I, I wished I knew at this point, Jason. I, I really do. I think there are ways to solve it. But like with any problem, I think everyone involved is going to have to acknowledge we have a problem. And I think there are some users who don't see it as a problem. We've got some businesses that are, and I don't fault anyone for this, but their, their business plan is we stay here and use the water until we can't. Hmm. And then we move to a place that has water that we can work. And I think we as a region and we as stewards of a land that has been so rich and so helpful to all of us and has supported us for generations, owe it to ourselves to take a hard look at it and say, we're willing to make some really difficult decisions. I just don't think those conversations have taken place yet. And I think for a lot of folks, it's going to be hard to get them to come to the table and have those conversations because then it feels like we're here to deprive you of a right you've been given by being the landowner we're here to deprive you of a right that you've been given as a as a mineral owner, as a water owner. And uh, I don't dismiss that that concern because these people have invested in buying the water rights and in buying their their land. And they do have the right to exercise that the way they want. I just think we need to find a way to have a more compassionate conversation about it's in everyone's best interest to try to find a better solution. This episode is sponsored by Terra Accounting and Consulting. I own my own business. And let me tell you, it's not for the faint of heart. When you're wearing multiple hats like, like I am, like most entrepreneurs do, it can be a recipe for burnout. So anytime I can outsource stuff that's far beyond my expertise, I try to do that. It's always a good decision. Well, Terra Accounting and Consulting understands this. They're a CPA firm built for doers like me. They help business owners build financial strategies that pave the way toward increased profitability and personal financial growth. Call Terra Accounting to schedule a consultation today. And if you mention Hey Amarillo, you'll receive $100 off any service. When it comes to accounting, payroll, bookkeeping, and tax prep, Consider it done with Terra Accounting and Consulting. That's Terra, T-E-R-R-A. Okay, I'm back with Clay Stribling of the Amarillo Area Foundation. Clay, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Okay. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight artifacts from the Second Battle of Adobe Walls. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. I imagine you're familiar with the museum and its collections. Well, I will also say that it is home of the Harrington Oil and Gas Exhibits, and uh, that's something that we at the foundation have a long history of working with and supporting, and we love the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. I was up there a couple of couple of months ago, and just I spent so much time just looking at Don Harrington's office replica mm-hmm. and how different it is from offices today. Yes. And just imagining all of the deals and transactions and stuff that passed over that desk, you know, yeah. with nothing but, you know, some pens and pencils and maybe a phone behind them, you know, it was, it was fascinating to me. Yes. Okay. So here's eight straight. Um, I, I'm going to start the way I've started uh, most of the questions over the past few months. What's one thing the previous year has revealed to you about local people? I know we've talked at, at length about it from, you know, the foundation side, but tell me something that's it's helped you realize. Resiliency, I really think, is the most key thing for, for the panhandle this year. You know, folks have been through, uh, been through the ringer this year, you know, uh, the pandemic, and then politics has been tumultuous this year. In June, we had, uh, we had a very big political issue nationally regarding Black Lives Matter. And I think all of that had the potential to really rip communities apart. But folks here, even though we have a variety of opinions, um, and even though we get passionate about them, they're resilient. Um, they pick themselves up by their bootstraps. I know we use that phrase a lot, but I think it, it applies because in something like 
2020 where we've seen so much chaos. I think people have just been resilient and said, all we can do is just keep going on and keep doing the best we can do. Okay. What does this area have too much of? Wow, that's a good question. And my first response to that, I think, is going to be wind. Um, but, you know, I've lived here long enough that the wind doesn't really bother me that much. But um, what do we have too much of? Yeah, I think that's going to have to be the answer. Okay. I think wind is the only thing I, I, I can think I don't think anybody of. would would argue <laughs> with you about that, except maybe the folks at Excel Energy who are yes. learning to harness that. So <laughs> what does this area not have enough of? Um, water is one of the answers that I want to say. You know, um, I, I really worry about our water situation. And I think this area really struggles with the diversity of our economic base, too. I really think we need to diversify into some areas. Technology, find that niche in technology that can be exclusively the panhandles. And I, I really um, wish we had a little bit more of that. And we've made a lot of progress along that front we really you know, in recent decades. But, yeah, I can, I can, I can see so much potential um, given just the space that we have and large abandoned warehouse buildings and stuff for something, you know, technology supported, um, healthcare supported, any of that stuff, manufacturing, but. Well, and you look at something like uh, the new program that's going on at Amarillo College where they're going to start doing films there mm -hmm. and we're going to start seeing digital effects be a focus there. And I think that's the kind of industry that has the ability to really latch on and create some energy in the panhandle. But we could then replicate that so many times with other things right. like app development and, and other things. And I think we just need to keep our minds open to um, how we can stretch our legs technologically. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? I think the first thing that always comes to mind with me about Amarillo is the people. Uh, the people are very friendly. It is a very family-oriented place. Uh, if you're going to ever describe it to someone geographically, I think the word flat has to come into, yeah. your, into your description. And I think a lot of people see that as a negative. I don't. I, you know, I love our, our landscape here. I've grown up here. Uh, I love being able to see for miles. When I first moved to SMU to go to law school, uh, I was I was really unsettled for weeks, and it took me a while to realize that it's because I couldn't see. You know, I, I I was I could only see half a block in any direction, and it just drove me nuts. And so, I really love being here in the open space where I can see twenty miles in any direction, and and don't feel claustrophobic. But uh, I think it's the people, and it's the friendly atmosphere, and it's just the fact that this is a a great place to raise a family. What's your favorite local restaurant? Man, this this question is it's a loaded question because we have a lot of really fantastic local restaurants. I I was very tempted to say Punjabi affair when we started, but for my entire life I've been all about Mexican food. I really have. It's been my very favorite thing, and and my favorite spot right now in Amarillo for Mexican food is Braceros on Sixth Street. Okay. I just love Braceros. They do a great job. All right, what's your favorite season in Amarillo? The fall. Um, you know, I, I remember so many fond times in the fall growing up watching football, being out there and watching the teams play in, in you know, the increasingly cold weather. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was a band kid and we marched in the fall and I loved that. That was a, a fond memory. Um, when I first moved here in the fall of 2012, I can remember sitting on the front porch and just saying, um, it is never like this in Dallas. It's just beautiful. You know, the weather's perfect. Um, and in Dallas, it's hot and humid so much of the year, and it's the fall's just fantastic. We probably covered some of this in, in talking about um, describing the area, but what do you think is the most underrated aspect of living here? I think one of the most underrated aspects about living here is the variety of what we get. You know, we, we have, I, don't, I think people don't realize what an important asset the canyon is. Mm -hmm. um, they don't realize what an important asset our weather is. We get four seasons. I mean, and that's that's unheard of in most of the rest of Texas. And um, we get more summer than most of the folks in New Mexico get, and we get more winter than most of the folks in Dallas get. I just think our, our climate is custom-made for the life that we've been living here for generations. I think that's a very underrated aspect of, of the panhandle. Even locally, because we, we like to complain about the climate. We do, but I mean... I think that's the nature of being somewhere. You know, it's kind of it's kind of a, a socialization thing to complain about something. Well, you know, it's gonna the, the weather changes so fast and it changes so quickly. But at the end of the day, I love having a real winter. I love having a real summer, and I love having some beautiful transitions between them. I mean, the spring is a very close second for me after autumn, mm -hmm. but um, the spring and the fall here are fantastic. 
Okay, and last question. You mentioned this, but when was the last time you visited Paladura Canyon? It was just pre-pandemic last year, so right about a year ago. Okay. Um, I, I like taking folks who are visiting for the uh, for the holidays out to the to the um, canyon and showing them. I always tell them, I wish you were here in May because when it's green, it's breathtaking. Um, but last year, about this time, was the last time I was in the canyon. Okay. Even even during the winter, though, get a little bit of snowfall down there. It's it's amazing. Most people don't see that. But. It is, and it's got such great resources down there. I mean, the the amphitheater is fantastic, and the Mac Dick Event Center is fantastic. I just think it's it's got so much going for it. All right, Clay, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or experience in this area? Well, I, I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to endorse a concept that uh, several local businesses have embraced. And, you know, uh, kindness is something that's really important to me right now. And I think um, as we emerge from a politically tense environment and as we emerge from um, the pandemic, which has caused a lot of frustration and confusion, we just need to stop and remember to be kind. And I think we've got a couple of folks here in town who are very good about reinforcing that. I, I'm going to start by saying Palace Coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, kindness is the cause is one of my favorite statements that we have in the community right now. And Patrick and his his team over at Palace are really good about promoting kindness. They give back to our community through their nonprofit support. Uh, they're just good, good business and good people. And they live that mission um, more than just promoting it. And I think they're very kind to people. Um, but I think the city has also done a really good job of promoting kindness. I think trying to be empathetic and trying to be understanding in this environment um, has been a challenge, and I think they've managed it very well. Okay. Clay Stribling, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Clay for the original interview. You can learn more about the Amarillo Area Foundation at amarilloareafoundation.org. Thanks also to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, Terra Accounting and Consulting, and SKP Creative for sponsoring the show. This episode was edited by the talented Angelina Marie. And the podcast exists every week because of listeners like you, especially the local people who support it financially. You can do that if you're interested through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Executive producers of the show include Barbara and Jim Witten, Griselda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Neil Nossiman, Joshua Rafe, and Ryan Pennington. This has been episode 180. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>